We took a vote, and we're eating David first. In honor of Pompeii, what disaster movie didn't make you wish everyone who made it was extinct? I'm Katie Rich, and the answer is so obviously Titanic, I can't believe we're even asking this question. Hey, it's me, David the Seven. Dante's peak, because the volcanoes have a personal vendetta against Pierce Brosnan. It killed his wife, and then we're coming back for him. I'm Matt Patches, and I first want to say that Katie still has a Titanic standee in her parents' home, and she should be embarrassed by that fact. Um, but my actual answer is contagion, because I'm still holding out hope that Steven Soderbergh is coming back from retirement. And I'm David Ehrlich, and I'm going with Mimi Leader's Deep Impact, because I am still still uh, you know, chewing over the politics of how they put everyone into the ark and the that's it there's nothing more from Taylor leone and the late maximilian shell on the beach it's beautiful stuff gentlemen you can't fight in here this is the war room fine i can hear you now dimitri clear and plain and coming through fine i'm coming through fine too eh good then well then as you say we're both coming through fine good well it's good that you're fine and and i'm fine I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 11 for February 18th, 2014. Thank you for listening. Thank you for writing iTunes reviews. Thank you for continuing to do it. If you haven't done it yet, what are you waiting for? It's so exciting. It's so fun. It makes us pay attention to you and your words. We are always happy to have you guys telling us that we are great. Makes David especially happy. You know, he can't go to sleep at night without it. So nothing makes people happier than making me happy. <laughs> That's true. Uh, keep bringing the reviews. Keep listening, and thank you very much. All right, this weekend I had a, an amazing cinematic experience here at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. In you saw Vampire Diaries. I saw Vampire... No, no, oh, wait, Vampire no, Academy. Crap. Vampire Academy. Yeah, God. seriously, that's a TV show. Get it right or pay the price. Um, <laughs> uh, so yes, I I headed to BAM this weekend to see a five and a half hour film by uh, director Matthew Barney, who is previously he, he is more of an artist perhaps than he is a filmmaker but who am i kidding he makes movies so he is a director uh, along with being a visual artist uh, a poet a songwriter in some instances he's previously known for his films creme master cycle and drawing restraint series um i've seen a few of the drawing restraint i've seen a few of both films um once i saw drawing restraint number i think seven or nine at the san francisco museum of art that's where his films mostly play at at museums and it was filled with petroleum it was a commentary on petroleum fascinating movie um not quite but this movie that i saw at bam this weekend is called river of fundament if you follow me on twitter you probably saw me going off about it all day on sunday because i, I was losing my mind over this movie and i i should say here that i know in the past episodes we have gotten a little like R-rated dirty talk on this podcast, and it's disgusted some people who thought that was a very vile conversation. I'm telling you now, this is going to be a, a grotesque conversation, and if you are, if fecal matter makes you throw up a little in your mouth, you may want to skip ahead to the mini. Should we segment. do like? Should you do it more this American Life like, where you're like, if you have small children, maybe move them out of the room for a little bit? Unless now might be the time to have a conversation about the. The, the the usage of poop in your life. Uh, I think well, kids like poop more than adults. Actually, they do. So I'm they told might everybody love the poops. Fundament. Uh, <laughs> so yes, where to begin with that preamble? Where to begin with River Fundament? How to have a conversation about this film? Um, the River of Fundament is kind of uh, an exploration of the life of author Norman Mailer. It's kind of an exploration of Egyptian resurrection mythology. Um, with the battle of you know Horus and Set and the the tale of Osiris and Isis and it's kind of an exploration of um, automobile production in America and perhaps more um, commercialism and and industry here in our country and it's also about uh, poop it's a lot about <laughs> poop um, and just like poop. sexuality and, and bodily functions and just how we're operating as people, man and machine. Um, and Matthew Barney, again, he is an artist. This is not a conventional film by any means. You know, it's five and a half hours long. 
but it is narratively driven. So all of these things are kind of roped into one. Uh, and we pick up with the film. Oh, God. <laughs> um, so the film opens with Norman Mailer. He's just died. and um, But he's going to be resurrected from the River of Feces, which is what I guess the Egyptians believe is where the dead cross over and kind of are reborn. And apparently Norman Mailer's um, brownstone in Brooklyn underneath it is the River of Feces. So in this first scene, we actually see spirits who are shepherding Norman Mailer's ghost. They rise from the River of Feces. So we see Matthew Barney actually in, in like an old man garb rise from a sea of shit, go into Norman Mailer's bathroom, see the overlord of Egyptian gods. Um, his name escapes me right now. But he bends Matthew Barney over and fucks him in the ass. Okay. Wow. Oh, actually, wait. I'm sorry. Let me back up there. Matthew Barney goes into the bathroom first at Norman Mailer's apartment, finds a poop in the toilet, wraps it in gold leaf and flushes it. And and actually, the the god spirit is reborn from that poop. Then he fucks him in the ass. And then mm. Nor, uh, Matthew Barney has the spirit starts bleeding oil, like like would come out of the engine of your car. And so Norman Mailer is going to be reborn as a car, but also as a human as long as he um, kills a, a cow and lives inside of it for a day. Anyway. Thus far, you're just describing the X-Files. <laughs> <laughs> and throughout this, there ha um, Norman Mailer's friends are having a wake. So, like, Fran Lebowitz comes over, or Elaine, uh, <laughs> Elaine Stritch comes over, or James Toback, the filmmaker, comes over, or Jonas Makis comes over. And they're all having this wake for Norman Mailer and kind of talking about how important he was. And also, Paul Giamatti's there, but Paul Giamatti's not playing Paul Giamatti. He's playing the pharaoh Tanephotep. And he is, is he's the only one who could see the real Norman Mailer. This movie's crazy. I feel like we're like ten minutes into the movie at this point. <laughs> yeah, not, this, this is a five and a half hour movie. So there's a lot Does of jumping film... back and forth between like, here's old tale flashbacks to the, the birth of Isis and listen let me <laughs> let me just ask the one question that all of our listeners okay. want to know the sure. answer to does this five and a half hour film about the reincarnation of norman mailer touch upon norman mailer's guest starring appearance on an episode of the gilmore girls yes or no it does not but it does touch upon norman mailer's appearance in previous matthew barney films which i'm sure you were more uh, interested in actually it might all, just like gilmore his gilmore girls, girls. Yeah, because it's all-encompassing for his life. So you know what? It actually could have to do with Gilmore Girls. But uh, in a previous Matthew Barney film, I think in one of the Creme Master films, Norman Mailer played Houdini, who is also part of this movie. Um, because Houdini stood in for Osiris and his death. Uh, he's launched over a bridge at some point. So this movie, I, I'm, I'm fascinated with what you guys think just hearing about this. But perhaps also your own experiences with quote-unquote art film. Um, this is clearly something that, this... that will play in uh, museums and, and actually... <laughs> it's coming to multiplexes the world over. It's going to overtake the Lego movie. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> well, it's, it's also Matthew Barney. There's a lot of song in it, a lot of poetry and kind of bouncing does, between. Does his partner Bjork make an appearance of any kind? There's either no Bjork, on but his screen longtime or composer, her... ha uh, Jonathan Bepler, has composed a lot of music. So a lot of it is sung. It is an opera and it will be playing in opera houses. Uh, one of the most intriguing huh. scenes has Maggie Gyllenhaal as an older incarnation of a spirit who's helping another spirit helping to shepherd uh, Norman Mailer's spirit through the resurrection process over and over again. She actually is trying to profess to her father, who is this old spirit who fucked Matthew Barney in the ass in the first scene, um, telling him to, to give up on the resurrection. It's fruitless. It's pointless to keep bringing people back. And along while, uh, like, she's, she's singing to him. Imagine Maggie Gyllenhaal, totally normal-looking, standing in a, in a room full of naked people, like, doing weird shit. Like, there's a woman flailing around a naked midget and, like, another man blowing into a woman's anus, like, playing it like a trumpet, and another woman bent over, like, doing a handstand, shooting water out of her vagina. It's insane. Like, and then Maggie Gyllenhaal. Oh, these... And I think that's so brave oh. and interesting because, like, here I, I keep thinking about Shia LaBeouf during all this and his kind oh, of, like, God. parade <laughs> Why of did you art. let him that get means in your he wins. That I he know, wins Jesus. But, no, he's well, defeated no, that's because like, I don't take him why, seriously. Why uh, is, the, is the film in any capacity a commentary on – Celebrity culture. In what way are is the appearance of Elaine Stritch and Paul Giamatti and Maggie Gyllenhaal enhancing what Barney is trying to do, or what other purpose does it serve that it's those particular recognizable faces? Well, I don't think it 
I don't think it is commentary. I think it's about, well, first off, all these famous faces in the beginning appear because we're talking about Norman Mailer, because we're talking about someone whose texts disappeared, who couldn't make a stamp. It's actually, the, the movie is adapting a book that um, Norman Mailer wrote about Egyptian resurrection. I'm trying to find the name of that book. I will get back to you. But, um, oh, it's called Ancient Evenings. And it's basic, and this is a loose adaptation of that, replacing Norman Mailer with the lead character, as many suspected he did himself when he wrote it. Um, so the appearance by many of his friends makes sense because you're having a wake and being realistic. But I think these famous actors are not, we're not supposed to perceive them as famous actors. We're, we're supposed to be convinced by their performances. And I think I do lose myself to that. This is a film. As bizarre as it sounds, it's narratively compelling. I mean, it's a visual spectacle. It certainly, you know, it, it overtakes something like uh, a Transformers movie to me that like astounds me with what Barney is putting on display here with the destruction of vehicles and just, I don't know where he gets the money. I guess he sells all his statues and all his art, his visual art that he creates for movies. Um, kind of like Jean-Claude and Christo almost, you know, when they do the, the gates, they sell it all and then they have the fuel for their next project. I think that's what he does here. Cause this is a multi-million dollar film. This is huge. Um, and, and it's a, I'm sure that he has private, investors and whatnot i mean i think that someone of his stature is so well connected in the art world that there are unlike i think when you're trying to fund an independent film of the more conventional variety i think that there are probably benefactors who like uh many large-scale pieces of art are willing to for some degree of ownership over it give millions of dollars uh, yeah I- oh yeah yeah their art world is insane he definitely has no trouble raising crazy amounts of money but i just wonder like at what point you if you guys have experienced art film or or have trepidation about taking it seriously i think a lot of people might walk into river of fundament and see all this provocative imagery and kind of feel stranded by it like it would it's not really connecting but for me this is a narrative film with some bizarre shit that i can i can i can soak that in he's saying something with all this crazy stuff but for a lot of people i think it's just crazy stuff but what is he saying? Like, what did you feel you had learned by coming to the end of this? Well, I think it's about man and machine and that relationship and um, what our mythology, what gods that we cling to, our, our relationship with religion and nature is also a very important aspect of the film. I mean, it's it's grandiose because it's five and a half hours long. He touches on so many things. But I think it is all-encompassing. I think – and, David, you might be right to perceive some – elements of it based on my description um as being about celebrity culture at least about superficial elements of what our country has to offer um there's a scene in the movie where kind of this r&b singer sings a song called river of fundament um, which is maybe the best part of the movie but then he starts singing about how like all these people who are getting fucked suddenly it's it's hurting them and they like start spewing shit from their ass and like oh this element, you know, poop is supposed to, as Paul Giamatti tells us early in the film, poop can bring life. You know, it's growing his crops. Um, poop is something that people are supposed to be birthed from. Um, but suddenly it's violent shitting and, and maybe it's bad and it's coming out of vaginas instead of asses during this R&B number. And it's crazy. Like it's it's just keeps flipping itself on its head. And I found it wildly entertaining and compelling and interesting. But uh, so pr- even I, for five and a half hours, even for five, well, there's two intermissions. So and <laughs> it, they give you a little bit of break <laughs> discussion moments. Um, but I, I know I have to wrap up. So I would say if River of Fundament is ever in your proximity, please go see it because so few people saw it when it played here at BAM for like four or five performances. Um, I have no one to talk to. <laughs> Brace yourselves for some very harsh language. Take it away, Morgan Freeman. The Poop That Took a Pee. Chapter 1. Douglas had to poop. His butt was all stinky because he had to poop so badly. There was a gross woman named Rebecca who was sunbathing all naked and she was fat. Douglas walked up to her and said, I need to poop. Okay, Rebecca replied. I like poop. Douglas squatted down over the fat sunbathing lady and went poop. The poop sat there on Rebecca's boobs, looking like a wiener. 
So uh, now we have another edition of Film Centipede, which I find very hilarious that it's coming after a segment about poop. A G-rated Film Centipede. Everyone's already turned this off anyway. They're too disgusted. I warned people. So we're still going to use Into, but the concept of Film Centipede is you take three movies, you put them into each other, and what comes out the end is another movie. Did that help? Did that help with everybody's description no. of this? I feel great right now. Let's just keep this going. Okay. So, like our previous uh, film, Centipede, this is from 10 years ago, which means movies from 2004. And I Ooh. have no idea if these will be difficult or not. It's sort of... I don't know. We have a few of them. Let's just let's just go with it and see, and see how it rolls. Um, all right. So, let's start with uh, Katie, since she's feeling ill. We'll give her one that I think <laughs> is going to be easy. Okay. All right, Matchstick Men goes into Tomb Raider, goes into the Da Vinci Code. Oh, um, it's it got to be National Treasure. That is correct. Yeah, I guess the first one was in 2004. I can't remember the... That is correct. The first one was in 2004. It was not uh, awesome. Book of whatever, Book of souls book of shadows secrets, secrets i think book of secrets, book of secrets. there were book a lot of, of bad else. there were a lot of bad sequels in 2004 but i tried to steer clear of them for this because then you're just putting sequels into sequels and that defeats the greater thing that we're learning through this game which is <laughs> that things get rehashed david yeah swordfish goes yeah. into electra goes into charlie's angels 2 and comes out as with this movie Swordfish goes into Electra, which I never saw, because why would I? And comes out as Charlie's Angels 2. <laughs> uh, it's, it goes through Charlie's Angels 2 and comes out as this movie. And it came out in 2004. Came out in 2004. Is it a horrible <laughs> film? <laughs> I mean, it's got to yeah, be a horrible yeah, film. Yeah. I don't think there's much. There's much... Not good source material here. Yeah, not a lot of good things to pull into... from. Well, that's shitty cartoon, I mean, graphic novel movies were there that were like heists with John Travolta. Was it fucking The Punisher? It was not The Punisher. Oh, wait, was it Catwoman? You could guess, Patches. Is it Catwoman? It is Catwoman. Yes! Oh. That was my guess. But isn't John Travolta in The Punisher? He is. He's the bad guy. <laughs> I thought that was a good guess. I don't know what year Punisher came out. If Punisher came out in 2004... I'm claiming it's the right answer. You know what? Punisher <laughs> did come out in 2004, but Charlie's Angels 2 is the Demi Moore villain that also Catwoman shared. Wait, Demi no. Moore was the villain in Catwoman? That was Sharon Stone. No. Yeah, what? That was Sharon Stone? <laughs> yeah. All right. Oh, you I know totally what, David? We'll, we'll, give you it. we'll give you it for Punisher what? because that actually uh, also fits. It fits. Wow. It's still Thank a female villain. It's still yeah, like a, Electra. The Punisher, it came no out sense. in 2004. It has John Travolta. It, it has, it's based off a superhero like fucking Electra. But Electra's a female has, superhero like Catwoman. It all checks oh out God. patches. Give up the point. Give me my film centipede. We'll oh. we'll contest that point and just no, leave it there. No, that checks out. That's. I think the audience. Audience. What do you? Yeah, I think they. Agree. All right. I tell you what. I didn't plan for this happening, but patches. I'm gonna give you one that could be two movies if I switch out the middle <laughs> movie. If you wow. could get both movies, you could just slam David down. Terrible. We won't I, debate this give anymore. Give me one at least. Go. <clears throat> okay. No. 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 I'm gonna give it to you. I'm gonna give you three movies. You see if you can get it. And then I'm going to switch out one, right. and then you see if you can get that one. All right. All right. Spy Game, Into Cat in the Hat, Into Training Day. Whoa. Spy Game, Into Cat in the Hat. Wow. Uh, um, let's see. Spy Game was Brad Pitt and Robert Redford. And Cat in the Hat was that Mike Myers movie. And mm -hmm. what was the third one? Training Day. Training Day. Um... Gosh. Well, I don't think it's the love guru. <laughs> I can I'm I'm gonna say that for sure. Um crap, that's tough. I don't Mike Myers was never in a in a spy movie, was he? Oh wait, Austin Powers um <laughs> <laughs> I'm going I'm going with Austin you Powers Gold. Dummy. Number. No, it Damn. is Man on Fire. 
What is the cat Tony in the Scott? Hat? Oh, Dakota Spy Game. Fanning. Damn. Damn. Cat in the Hat is Dakota Fanning is abducted, and Training Day is badass. Uh, and you uh, said Denzel no Washington. sequels. I've made a horrible. I thought decision. you were on the wrong track with Mike Myers, but I would not have come up with that. All right, to make another twenty four two thousand four movie, still with patches. Spy Game goes into Ocean's Eleven this time, and that still goes into Training Day to make this two thousand four movie. Oh my gosh. Um, who else was in Training Day? Ocean's Eleven, the original, or the Frank Sinatra version. Maybe that in itself is a clue. Oh, my God. Um, oh, I don't really uh, – I have no idea. Um, that would be the Manchurian Candidate patches, <sighs> also of 2004. So I have failed this game. Yep, espionage into Frank Sinatra remake, back into Denzel Washington. Wow. Katie wins. Yeah. Katie really prevails no matter what uh, the vote. Well, we, uh, we got. Excuse me. We got, excuse me. Hey, we got three more. Excuse me. All we know is that Patches loses. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> All right, Katie. Yeah. Mrs. Doubtfire goes into Mo Money, goes into Big Mama's house. Oh, my God. Oh, I don't know what Mo Money is. What is Mo Money? Uh, that would be a giveaway. Because that would be a giveaway. It's oh, like good. the element. That's the leading, the leading. It can't be Norbit, and it can't be Big Mama's House 2, and it's not a Medea movie, because those things mm, aren't coming out until yep. 2006. There's really only one movie you're leaving out of this genre. I know. What the, how am I possibly forgetting the other... Hey, Dave, just for a reference point, what is, this Black genre, man in a dress. What is the genre you're uh, <laughs> referring to? Is it to? Black Man in a Dress? <laughs> At Black Man in a Dress is the genre that Katie's name is. <laughs> Netflix and recommends this... these films based on your love for Black Man in a Black Dress. Man Black Man in a Dress. Um, I cannot come up with it. I... Wait, I think I know. David. Hold on. Hold on. I'm Are you looking it up? The... No, I'm just confirming the year. It's White Chicks. It's White Chicks. It is White Chicks. Oh, White Chicks. Always throws Are... you off because they're not really like black guys in a dress anymore, you know? They're white girls in a dress in such convincing outfits. All right, David. Yeah. Remember the Titans. It goes into uh-huh. Varsity Blues. Uh-huh. goes into Bad News Bears. Uh, remember the Titans. So they're in high school? Or they're looking for accept? I mean, it goes into Varsity Blues. They have to be in high school. Goes into Bad News Bears. Famously about high school. Bad News Bears. Not about high school. Um, I mean, placements goes into Varsity Blues. A combination of two football movies equals. <laughs> <laughs> the, wait, say it again. The replacements? Oh, no. Remember the Titans. Remember oh, the wait, Titans. I know. <laughs> I think I know too. Varsity Blues. Way to cackle, right. Patches. Bad News Bears. <laughs> I actually probably I don't know, but... Um, Remember the Titans? If it makes... The Vars- abundance of football yeah. kind of throws this one off. Am I right, Dave? Yeah. Yes, and you know... The- Is it the Keanu Reeves baseball movie? No, Wait, it's not the Keanu Reeves guess? baseball movie. You can guess. Is it Coach Carter? Wait, I have a guess, Coach too. Carter. Is it Friday Night Lights? It is Friday Night Lights. <laughs> yeah! That makes a lot more sense. Bad News Bears was the remake <laughs> with Billy Bob Corton- Thornton coach. Corton. As is Friday Night Lights. I, I, I thought mm. I thought the football was a, a, a tease, throwing us. Well, off. K- Katie wins because it's her turn, uh, and she. Wait, I, what, what about me? Wait, wait, yep. I guessed Katie's answer just a second That's ago, true. and Katie just gets my answer. Why did she win? Don't I get a third? Because one? you guys, you guys are getting the points for that. I'm keeping track. All right. Oh, really? Yes. But that's fine. We, let's let's just pretend points didn't matter and get patches this last one. Good, because he wagered it all on a I need to foolish myself. double double jeopardy. All right, patches. Flintstones, Viva Rock Vegas, into yes. Batman and Robin, into She's All That. Oh my God! Um, Wait, hold on. Like one more time. Flintstones, Viva Rock yeah. Vegas, specifically into <laughs> Batman and Robin, into mm-hmm. She's All That. Um, she's all that. That is the, uh, is that the gender swap? That is what? not, no. No, you think that is, she's uh, the She man. takes off her glasses, she's pretty. What? Oh, right. Oh my pretty god, am I a bet? Am I a fucking bet? <laughs> Come on, <laughs> Patches. Right. Um. Does she really say fucking? Yes, she does. Wow. It's a very racy film. 
Get I was thinking it. of the Idiot. Amanda Bynes movie for some reason. You she's were the man. But she's all that. Yes, is about makeovers. Batman and Robin is a shitty, shitty superhero movie, and the first one was Flintstones: Viva Rock Vegas, which is also a shitty sequel. But it took place in the past, or it was an adaptation of a cartoon. Um, I'm gonna go with. Oh, I think I know. <sighs> Scooby Oh wait, yes, yes. Wait, I'm going to go with uh Scooby Doo. No wait. The sequel to Scooby Doo. Scooby Doo 2. That That's that's close enough. Scooby Doo 2 Monsters Unleashed yes! is the correct answer. Oh, I thought it was wow. going to be Josie and the Pussycats. Written by James it's ba- Gunn. It's Batman and Robin because it shoes in Alicia Silverstone as a main cast member for no reason. I feel like I got <laughs> the tough ones this round. Oh, wine, wine. It's revenge. Yeah. Well, everybody's a winter winner. Everybody's everyone's winter. A <laughs> everyone's a winter sale. Let's fly away on, on our Pegasi. Whatever. Whatever. I went down to the beach and saw Kiki. She was all like, eh, and I'm like, whatever. Then this chick comes up to me and she's all like, hey, aren't you that dude? And I'm like, yeah, Whatever. So later, I'm, I'm at the pool hall, and this girl comes up, and she's all like, uh, and I'm like, yeah, whatever. The third series of Sherlock uh, wrapped up airing on PBS a few weeks ago. I just finally caught up with it, and I've been wanting to talk to Dave about specifically the first episode of this new series slash season, depending on which terminology you use. Um, Dave, you were doing uh, regular appearances on the Screen Bites podcast to talk about these episodes, so I kind of have been talking to you in my head about these episodes before I actually got to talk to you now, which is kind of surreal. (laughs) Um, But what's interesting about, I mean, this season was interesting in various different ways, but I don't want to get into too much detail since not everyone is caught up. But what is very specifically interesting is the first episode, which is the first one that they had released in, I I guess, about two years. They had taken an uncommonly long hiatus because Martin Freeman and Cumberbatch were making The Hobbit and Star Trek and a million other things. And in the time that it had been off the air, there was a lot of time for fans to come up with theories about what they thought had really happened at the end of uh, season two. Patches and David, do you care if I talk about what happened at the end of season two? Oh, man. I Uh, really could not get less. That is is a noun. That is the name of someone on the show. Um. Uh, Sherlock had effectively faked his own death, and you learn in the final moments of the episode that he's not really dead, but not really how he managed to fake this. Wait, Sherlock isn't dead on Sherlock? I know, it's shocking information. Even though Katie is describing Sherlock season two, she's also describing uh, Sherlock Holmes' Book of Shadows or Game of Shadows. Oh yeah, I never saw that one. that happen? It's the exact same way. All right, fair enough. Um, so you come back into season three and you don't know how he survived and there's some time spent in the episode with him reintroducing himself and showing back up with Watson and all of that. But there's also a significant amount of time given over to theories from the people in his life. Or you have Lestrade who's kind of upset about it, who has his own theories about how he might still be alive. And then this group of fans who have gotten together and they've put together all of these theories about what they think really happened. One of which includes Sherlock and Moriarty making out on the roof, which is like, really blatant and unnecessary nod to like weird slash fiction fandoms. And it was really the show stepping out of itself and saying, Oh yes, we know what you've been saying these two years. We've been listening to you and here are all the ways that we're going to make fun of all of your crazy theories. Dave, I think you see it as being mean spirited, which I can kind of see that. But the thing that bugs me more about this is I want shows to exist in a vacuum. Like what did they actually do that called this to your attention? I mean, well, they like they would, you know, after breaks, you know, what would be a commercial break, even though it's not presented with commercials, they would come back and they would cut to a fantasy sequence of what might have happened. And then it would turn out to be someone's theory. And they would, you know, that theory would be disproven in a minute afterwards. So it would kind of show you scenes of how he might have thrown a dummy off the roof or how he might have switched his face with Moriarty's and thrown him off the roof or all these various other things. And then someone would come out and be like, oh, yeah, but that can't have happened because of this and this and this. And that extends to a explanation that Sherlock himself gives for how he survived. And the episode ends with no explanation of how he survived, and there never is an explanation for it. That's the part that seems like it's uh, purposefully referencing the fandom and then denying them it's acknowledging that they knew what we wanted and then saying but we know better but we're still going to take half of our episode and tell you that which 
is interesting to me because what you're saying with you want TV shows to exist in a vacuum is much more, I, I mean, I think what fans actually want because what <laughs> – what 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 they want when they're getting outraged like this is they want um, the showrunner to know what's happening. They want to feel like they're being told a story and taken on a ride and not necessarily directly addressed with like, you know, we don't know what's happening and why do you even why are you even caring about this? And so it seemed weird that Sherlock would take a step out to the detriment to telling its season-long arc, and it only gets three episodes to tell its season-long arc and spend half of the first one basically showing us things that didn't happen just to tell the fans that they were stupid for thinking about it. Yeah, and I think that those showrunners would probably argue that they're not trying to call you stupid, and you know that may or may not have been part of their intent. But what bugs me is, that, is the power that it gives fan theories that I don't think they need. I don't think that's the point of fan theories. I think people enjoy discussing shows that they like and talking about what they mean. But what they want is to have a show that exists on its own terms. And Sherlock is kind of a meta show to begin with because it's taking this very explicitly very famous character and putting him in a modern-day London that is exactly the same as ours, except that Sherlock Holmes never existed as a fictional character. So they've got some room to play with that stuff. But when it bugs me when community does it. It bugs me when Lost did it. Like any time that a show is kind of stepping out of itself to talk to the people who are watching it, it feels like a lack of confidence on their part I, in I what they're I'm actually creating. I know I'm about to open up a can of worms here, but what, when did Lost do that? Oh, with Nikki and Paolo. And when they basically... Off? Well, yeah, that's they, they acknowledged a, a it. famous, famous example. Yeah. Well, because uh, they were like, basically people had asked like, what's, what are all the other castaways doing? So they introduced these two characters over the course hmm. of, you know, a couple episodes in the background and then they give them a whole episode. I never knew that was a, a response to fan discussion. I always knew that was just like, oh, uh, we need to expand this show because we've been seeing the same people all the time and it's hard to introduce new characters. No, well, I do think that this is an inherently interesting topic. I have to say, even though I think House of Cards is not a good show, I am. it is nice to have a counterpoint to this where there is no air for fan theories in pretty much every which way between the fact that all the episodes premiere at once to the fact that it is rather, uh, rather true to uh, the British series. Although, uh, you know, I, would, I would argue there's a moment, I'm not going to spoil anything from the new season, but there's a moment in the first episode of the new series where in Kevin Spacey's director just to the camera in the first one, he says, did you miss me? Because it's gone through most of the episode and you think they've gotten yeah. rid of it. And that well, seems like the... a direct play on people complaining about the director dress last season. Yeah. I mean, this is the beauty of, I mean, and of course there are shows that I enjoy that take place over several seasons, but it's also the beauty of uh, something like true detective or like anime series, which famously just dump one full season uh and and that's pretty much the entirety of their run um things like that 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 don't basically sort of thing. nothing but I do think the call... or movies <laughs> well movie, <laughs> movies, movies yeah. is really what you're well, talking no, about I mean, come on we, uh, that business has been overrun <laughs> by speculative assholes but uh the I, I do think it's interesting when the shows but do you think that katie do you think there's any good that could potentially come from this well, other examples wait wait wait, wait. I, I think it's weird that we're all taking katie's side here because the medium of television was created i'm not to taking not anybody's do. side i'm asking okay i'm okay. simply asking if uh because she came at it from a rather well it wasn't overtly negative but it it could be uh you know i i inferred i thought it was, was sort of a negative overtly stance. negative oh right, fine um, so i'm i'm wondering if if Katie can flip it around and say uh, if she thinks that there are positive ways that shows can benefit from viewer feedback. I mean, like yeah. Arts. I mean, I think I don't want people to stop paying attention to the people who are watching. You should listen to what is being said about your show. That is the benefit of television where you can course correct. I mean, you see shows that get so much better over the course of their existence by recognizing what works and doesn't work. I mean, and I think, and I'm not as familiar with Joss Whedon as most people, but as I understand it, like he managed to work meta references in his shows that people really enjoyed because they hit a tone that Sherlock didn't manage to. But it's something that personally, the winky, the more winking it gets, the more I feel taken out of this world that I think they should just live in and embrace. Yeah, but I mean, the thing about like when Buffy did it or when a show does it to basically anchor and say that we are hearing you fans, like, you know, I don't know, even My Little Pony Friendship is Magic added a character named uh, Derpy after a while because a background character with accidentally crooked eyes caught in, like, the fandom's eye, and so they finally started adding it back in 
and you know it didn't like get become a character because that's sort of offensive to call it derpy but they you know continue to put it in there just to say like hey fans we hear you and the whole brony thing was erupting and they didn't really know how to deal with it but then there's stuff like what sherlock did which was essentially it got so far into telling us that you know they were hearing us and weren't going to satiate us <laughs> that it hurt the actual plot of the series so it's like it, it's I'm all for winks because I think it's nice that you know TV has breaks in between seasons where the writers all get to go do something else and have new life experiences and come back and try to apply that to entertaining us for a year. But it's like it's really only um, I guess recently when I've been able to ingest loads of things at once and then instantly go back in the internet and get feedback on it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes with the creators that this has started to bug me because it sort of feels like now that they have that outlet for interaction, if they want to have any nuanced interaction with the fan base, that's the place to do it. You know, they have their own forums and podcasts and Twitter accounts that they can control with the network and do whatever and not, you know, spur any lawsuits or spur any bad feelings. But, you know, they can't well, suddenly change the way that sort Sherlock of a- and Watson interact. Here's sort of a devil's advocate position, which is that – I mean do you think that obviously the availability, the accessibility of opinion is greater now than it ever has been or perhaps should be? But do you think that the people that um, – the showrunners that would actually take the criticism they find online to heart would have found ways to do that anyway even without the, the, the proliferation of – message boards and whatnot that like someone like lena dunham like people must be tweeting shit at her all day long about what they think should happen in girls and i don't know let's say for the purpose of this conversation she has an amazing ability to just not listen to any of it but there could be someone on the flip side of that who really needs to read what people are seeing needs to read the bad reviews needs to read the good reviews needs to read the theories and whatnot uh probably like the guys who ran lost and would have even without the internet found this sort of criticism constructive or otherwise and taken it to heart and modeled the show accordingly probably it's it's possible but just the way that a tv show's produced i'm not sure that it's ever really a good idea for in the middle of production to check in with your fan base like the whole reason that this sherlock i think season three came off so weird is because they had two years and basically had this froth they didn't know how to deal with and where they could have done it in like traditional American or British shows of past and then like a Christmas special or a one-off internet short thing just to, you know, poke fun at the fans. Instead, they decided to let it come in the narrative. And that's really disconcerting. And that's why they tell you, but- you know, like you're not allowed to read, you know, spec scripts for the show that you're working on while you're working on that show because you can't get anywhere near those ideas but i I, you know as an outsider to this i I am not caught up with sherlock i've only watched the first season um but as an outsider i i think of mysteries as commentary on narrative like i find the mystery genre and sherlock holmes to always be commenting on how narratives fluctuate and change and how they can be driven and what spurs them and I don't know. It seems appropriate for them to be reflective of how um, the internet comments on mystery. I mean, the way you describe this episode sounds Rashomon-like and about how people think they have all the answers. And that seems appropriate for Sherlock to explore. It seems like they're taking a creative, you know, it's it's a starting point for an interesting conversation. They do that in other ways within the show. I mean, they depict Sherlock as achieving this level of celebrity as you would expect for someone solving a bunch of mysteries. And he's got his fans before this whole thing happens. They like most episodes do. They construct a narrative in a way where you've got Sherlock kind of telling the story and then unraveling why this version of the story doesn't hold up. And the one that's true is something else. The where this distinguishes itself is it's so deliberately mirrored the conversation that had been happening amongst the fans of the show about this one specific topic. It was, it's kind of went outside of the narrative 
to comment on the narrative of the series as a whole, not just on the narrative of whatever the mystery at hand was. I mean, but isn't it nice for the for the fans to feel? I mean, clearly not given Dave's reaction, but wouldn't <laughs> it potentially be nice for the fans to feel like they're being listened to, even if they're like it's not like oh I need. It's like when you go to a concert and they the perform you're sitting in the front and the performer looks at you and you don't need them to be your best friend or validate you or pull you up on stage, but you're like oh I have a moment where they acknowledge that I exist. I mean, and isn't that that's how it would be if they did like a one cutaway thing that you're talking about where they. Have you know like sherlock and moriarty kissing but this actively they'll have a theory See that that was the worst thing they, they cannot do that under no circumstances can that happen that is anyway that one that was the part that drove me to crazy that actually well, does the, happen in the episode or yeah i mean yeah. it's one of those fantasy like someone laying out how they think it happened well see but the thing is is whose fantasy is it and then is that person immediately told that they're stupid because there are yeah. certain characters that would be allowed to have that fantasy in the world but Especially when they get to the crazy ex-coroner, uh, empty hearse club, you know, crazy fandom guy. It stops being anything that could exist in the plot world and becomes the tone. Is the tone really like, ha, how stupid would you have to be to conceive of this? Or is it more like, you know, that's a silly idea, but of course it's not the canon that we're, you know, that we're using for the show. It's Stephen Moffat silliness like it is telling them that they're essentially silly but in a light-hearted way that Benedict, Benedict Cumberbatch can do and make Sherlock a hit but I think he actually tells people that, that like they're silly and foolish and wrong I don't know it's it's been a while uh, since I've watched that that episode but I remember just watching it and having been part of the fandom that was wondering how because the, the interesting thing is that Sherlock the story involves a resurrection just like the source material does and that's one of the most often rep repeated things uh, when it's adapted but it's always he's just back and everyone's like hey he's back and deals with the consequences never has it really been dealt with in a way where we're supposed to care but not care at the same time and in that episode, you see Watson dealing with the comeback in this very emotional and significant way. And there's a way in which the meta comedy kind of takes away from that, which is really the most important part of the episode. But can't that, yeah. can't that be a distraction tactic? Can't they eventually tackle this answer later when people are not talking about it anymore? I don't know if they will. I mean, I'm guessing they will based on how they ended the third episode. But Well, yeah, that's sort of a further spoiler. And Yeah, well, that's, the first, there's no need to get into but, it. Not to tread into that territory because of it's spoilerish, but I, I wonder if this meta game that writers often play with us are are tactics to dilute the internet conversation at some point. We have to distract fans because they're too into this story. I'm like I'm getting that well, way with True Detective and all this um, King of Yellow talk. Like I just want everyone to pull back for a second and just kind of let this flow. But there is no way that that will be distracted because all the episodes are or, written. It's on the well, can. It's on unfolding. But, uh, you know, something me... like Sherlock can can have this maneuver to really, I mean, irk people that are going to stick with the show no matter what. So play the game and eventually come back swinging. So, Patches, as a fan of mysteries, do you, have you ever <laughs> watched, like, a mystery show or mystery narratives, let's say? Have you ever watched, like, a mystery show of some sort and felt that, they were doing something obtuse just to prove that they were smarter than you at the end, like something that you intentionally can't figure out. And at the end they reveal that there was no way you could have figured it out and fuck you. Like, I don't know. I'm sorry. Like prisoners. Well, it's no prisoners is the opposite of that. Prisoners is we were steps ahead of it the entire time. And it was totally well, only because of casting, fact. but in terms of the actual narrative, like you were supposed to, not know anything about the mother. Okay, that's. A, but why I'll, I'll tell you. So I'll tell you what movie is like that and uh, nonstop. <laughs> yeah. But we'll, uh, we'll hey, get there later. Spoilers. <laughs> but don't. I mean, why does it have to be so antagonistic? Isn't there a pleasure in in being having the wool pulled over your eyes? You know, yeah. when you're enjoying a piece of entertainment. When, with, I mean, it has to be done right. I mean, prisoners. Um, Prisoners is, as Patch just pointed out, is one of those examples where it's like I could never have solved this because you didn't give me the information. Uh, necessary. It's like asking somebody to cook a meal without the ingredients required, and it's that sort of frustrating. But when there are cases where um, you have all the pieces and still couldn't quite get there, and you feel 
you know, like golf claps off to the movie for, for pulling this off. I mean, I think that there's some satisfaction in that. Oh, I mean, Sherlock plays in that all the time. And they'll give you the pieces of something and you'll think you're onto something. And the longer you watch the show, the more you feel like you're in his head. And then there's one other step that he took that you didn't quite get. I mean, they're really good at that. It's just when it gets meta like this, that it gets frustrating. There's a certain point where it's hard. It's really a feeling from viewer to viewer. But with any sort of TV show in any sort of genre where you could feel that a television show is talking down to you. And I felt that at the beginning of Sherlock. And very rarely do I feel that with meta-commentary, because usually it it feels more like writers or producers acknowledging that the fandom is there and letting it go. But it's usually not this heavy and not so much giving the audience direct avatars in the plot and then telling those avatars they're stupid for caring, which felt really weird. Talking down to the audience, that seems like a weird why I don't I don't feel like anyone would truly have that ambition. That's I mean a weird you don't do it, perceive it. You don't do it because you, you you happen into it by accident. I mean, this is theory, I don't know. I'm assuming you happen into it to accident, because you're right. I don't think that anybody would be like, I'm gonna show these idiots and put them in their place. But mm-hmm. like you go you start with the I wanna make six cents impetus, but you end up making Lady in Water impetus. Well, I, I often think of like the people who hate watch shows, if that's what happens. And I, I, I feel like maybe we were talking about this in, in our pre-recording emails about How I Met Your Mother and just how How I Met Your Mother seems to be created in a vacuum in some ways. It's, it has fun playing meta games with itself that seem like very much in jokes within the show's context. Um, you know, like an episode where a number appears in every frame. Like, why are you doing this? You're playing games for yourself. Um, and I see so many people complain about it, and they and clearly the showrunners do not care. Like, they're not taking that word. They're just doing what they want. And it seems like maybe that was a show designed to kind of ebb and flow with the reactions to the different see, decisions. It's the design that you're talking about because usually sitcoms are designed to ebb and flow like that. You know, cheers, you swap in a love interest and it actually makes the show better somehow, even though you thought the show was perfect to begin with. But How I Met Your Mother is one of those weird shows where its premise is working from the end to the beginning and from the beginning to the end at the same time. So when you do stuff like that, that would be perfectly acceptable in any other sitcom and is perfectly acceptable to half the audience to some people that have bought into this initial plot premise, they feel like it's treading water. And then occasionally they put someone in yellow face and have trouble justifying that to anybody. Well, okay, that's a different direction to go with how I met your mother discussion. <laughs> you know, Full House never played these games with me. That's right. Except for that episode that's... where both Michelles were in the uh, episode. They had Mary Kate oh, yeah. and Ashley appear Wait, in a dream and they, they had a dream sequence actually i think michelle hit her head or something so she was kind of like she was in a coma no maybe not in a coma wasn't that the last episode where they uh oh, she gets amnesia yes 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 they did that as a stud to bring both of them oh yes so she is being toured around the house with her double so that the both of they could huh. uh, them could appear in an episode um that was a dumb tangent well <laughs> <laughs> Uh, go watch Sherlock if you haven't yet. It is remains incredibly fun to watch. I, uh, despite any complaints I will have about it, I had such a good time watching this third season and listen yeah. to Dave on Screen Bites talking about it. Yeah, and get to the end about it because then we could talk more about the ending later. Yeah, let's do it. That does it for today's Fighting in the War Room. We'll be back on Friday with a review of Pompeii, which is my most anticipated movie of 2014 by a long shot. It probably is. In the meantime, <laughs> I mean, of, of all of 2014? Of all no. Of, 2014. of the next few weeks? Yes. <laughs> um, in the meantime. Of the next few weeks? That, I mean, well, let's, not, let's not split hairs here, but come on. I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to it more than Pompeii or more than nonstop. Like, that's basically <laughs> the only choice I what got. About, here. What about Nymphomaniac? 
What about what? what? The Grand Nymphomaniac? Oh, the Grand is that coming? Kind of... All right, fine, fine. It's a movie I'm, ne- I'm most looking forward to in the next 10 days. <laughs> I mean, what about what an honor. fucking. I don't even know. I just want. <laughs> Pompeii. I'm sure there's something. It's going to be amazing. I'm very ready. In the meantime, tell the people who you are. I am Matt Patches. I write on the internet at all sorts of places. I put all my work at mattpatches.com. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. And remember, each week we put our episodes on fightinginthewarroom.com where you can comment and leave your your, uh, your advice, your wisdom, your poop jokes uh, pertaining to River of Fundament. Um, and you can tweet the article. You can do everything from our website, fightinginthewarm.com. I'm David Ehrlich. I'm no longer with film.com. I am now uh, considering my move options, on. as they say. <laughs> uh, Moveon.org, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, who knows where you'll be able to find me. But for now, you can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich and at Criterion Corner. And my old Tumblr that I've had for years and years is now called the death of film.tumblr.com. Wow. Which is in no way Seems an illusion to film.com. Appropriate. Wow. <laughs> but it is a nice double entendre that only occurs to you later. Anyway, you can find all of us on Facebook at Fighting in the War Room, where you can chat with us and leave things on our wall. Which is there a poke and option? Can they poke us? There, you can, <laughs> I, I don't know if you can poke us anymore. I think I rid of the poke button. If you find us on the street, poke. you can poke us. <laughs> Don't find us on the street. I'm Dave Gonzalez. You spell that first part, DA7E, which is also my Twitter handle. I'm Tuesdays at Pajiba talking about TV. Wednesdays at Latino Hyphen Review talking about superhero movie news. And you can call us and leave a voicemail because we're going to run out of trivia mini segments sooner or later at 914-410-6450. And I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at Vanity Fairs Hollywood or on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-A-C-H. You can also find the whole gang of us on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R, where you can answer this week's lightning round question, which was... In honor of Pompeii, what disaster movie didn't make you wish everyone who made it was extinct? (laughs) Thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week.